I would invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Exodus chapter 29. And would you please stand with me? We're going to read. It's a long chapter. And so I want us to set our attention in the first nine verses. And then we'll continue to expound on the rest of the chapter from there. I have for us this morning six points. I I want you to know that if you're taking notes, I'll try to communicate them all clearly. However, you may notice that the first three are given uh, plenty of attention. And then in writing the sermon, I sensed I was running out of time and have to race through the last three. So I'll do my best to communicate all that clearly. But I was reminded of just how substantive this chapter is. And the second half will have to move quickly. So if you get halfway through the sermon and you're feeling mentally worn, take a deep breath, uh, maybe drink some caffeine, and we're going to race through the second half. But before we do that, Exodus chapter 29 and verse number 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garment and put on Aaron the coat and the robe and the ephod. The ephod and the breastplate And gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. You shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priest shall be theirs by the statute, and the priesthood shall be theirs by the statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. This is the word of the Lord. We are praying he adds his blessing to its reading. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church this morning. This section on the tabernacle that we are studying over the last few weeks helps us understand the continuity of God's redemption. This text is a good help for us to understand the continuity. We are being served by the types that the tabernacle and the furniture and the priesthood and this consecration means for us as new covenant believers. So we are being served in the continuity and we are being reminded by the fact that from before the foundation of the world, God has had one consistent, unfailing, unchanging plan. We are reminded in that, that his promises never fail. When we see a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it blesses the church. It reminds us of the faithfulness of God. It gives us some particular instructions also about being the people of God. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So we've been looking at this section from Exodus 24 to Exodus 40. The whole passage has to do with the right worship of God. 
The fact that the second half of Exodus is about worship should tell us a lot about God's plan and desire for worship from His people. I hope that you'll understand that when someone... I I haven't heard it in a while, but maybe you've heard this puzzling philosophical question. What is the meaning of life? And I hope that you understand that what we're studying here answers that very question. It is the meaning of our life to worship our God, Creator, Savior, Jesus Christ. This section of Exodus is addressing that. The right worship of God. Obviously, the fact that Moses would spend two-thirds of this book, or a third of the book, on worship, tells us something about its importance. We said, if you remember, it's been several weeks, that Exodus chapter 24 is that sort of uh, a fulcrum of this section. So before Exodus 24, you have a lot of instruction. You have a lot of, here's what I want you to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Here's my law. Here's my expectations. I'm a holy God. This is how you should obey me. Then chapter 24 is the revelation of the God who's given the instruction. And then everything after that is the practical application of worship, okay? So you have instruction, 24, who God is. Everything after that is the expression of worship for that God. In chapter 25, we saw the instruction for making the sanctuary furniture. Chapter 26 and 27, we saw the tabernacle itself, the altar, and the courtyard. Last week, Josh did a wonderful, faithful job explaining to us chapter 28 and the special garments that the priests would wear to symbolize their unique place as worshipers before God. One of the themes that has been helpful for us in studying all of this antiquated architecture and furniture is seeing the types. We've looked at types. One of the things that we saw a few weeks ago was the way that the tabernacle in the wilderness is a type. It's a sort of Eden. It is mostly a sort of what God says is true in heaven. So there is a temple where God is in heaven that is duplicated or copied in the tabernacle, also in the coming temple that will be built in Jerusalem. So the tabernacle is this type, and what we're going to talk about today as we did last week is the way that the priesthood is a type. You're probably very familiar already that the Bible refers to the people of God today as a nation of priests. This speaks again to our central identity as worshipers. We are priests to our God. And we're going to expound on that as we come to Exodus 29 again, as was mentioned last week. So the central theme of Exodus 29 is this big word, consecration. Purification. It means this. Listen closely because I'm going to use this word a dozen times in the next few moments. Consecration. It means a rite of dedication performed by God's instructions to make a person or a thing symbolically set apart for uncommon use. To consecrate means God gave instructions for how to symbolically make a distinction to perform uncommon use. Consecration. 
And that's what chapter 29 is about. The priests that Pastor Josh described last week and their garments and their function and their distinction, we're going to talk today about their consecration. And as I mentioned, I have seven points. So we'll move through them quickly. Let me pray for the beginning of this preaching. Father God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would give us clarity in hearing. I ask that you'd give me clarity in speaking, that I would expound on the same truth that I am so dependent on, and that is that my holiness is totally found in Christ. I pray that that would be unmistakable in the teaching this morning. I pray, Lord, not just for those of us who sit in this room and are discipled by your word, but I would pray specifically today for Pastor Brian at the Highland and Marathon, for his pastoral ministry. I'm thankful for the kinship we have together. And I pray that, Lord, if he's teaching this morning, that you would bless his teaching, give him clarity and and fervor for the opportunity to be able to herald your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first of these seven points is from the verses we just read. That God's priests must be consecrated by a ritual cleansing. God's priests must be consecrated by ritual cleansing. Look at verse number one. The ceremony begins with a collection of three animals. Now, we're going to hear in a moment more about those three animals, but we find in Leviticus chapter 8 exactly what the three animals are for. Let me just give you a quick description of their purpose. The bull was going to be sacrificed as a sin offering. There are two rams. The first ram is going to be sacrificed as a burnt offering, and the second ram is going to be an offering of consecration. So these three signify and stress the importance of the priests who are ordained by God to come in and perform priestly work before God and how those priests need to be cleansed first. The command for ceremonial washing, look at verse 4. The washing is symbolic of the cleansing of the priest. You remember that we have described that there is a bronze uh, bowl, a, an altar, a dish. And that is full of water and used for washing. There are a number of water cleansings that we read about in Scripture. Have you ever wondered, where did baptism come from? In the intertestament period. By the time we start reading about John the Baptist, he's baptizing people. And have you ever wondered where it came from? And it has its roots in places like this, where water symbolically cleansed. It it wasn't just for hygiene and washing, but there was a ritual of symbolic cleansing done with water. And we could trace the commission to baptize, the ordinance of baptism that we observe today. We could trace that all the way back to texts like this one. Then in verse 5 and 6, you see the garments they're told to clothe themselves in, which again we studied in chapter 28. Verse 7, the priest is anointed with oil. This gives a visible marker 
that God had chosen Aaron and his sons to be priests. The anointing of the priests. Which, by the way, just maybe you'd put a pin in this. King David, when Samuel comes and anoints him, from that point on, King David is referred to as the anointed of the Lord. And ultimately, this all serves as a metaphor for the Messiah, Christ, who is called the Anointed One. These are anointed as a marker that God had chose them for a consecrated, a special purpose. So the question is, what application do we gain from this ritual cleansing? Like, what do, what do you and I do with nine verses about ritual cleansing? Well, we, we could speak a really practical sermon about the importance of showering and bathing, I suppose. But that would miss the text, wouldn't it? There is a truth from this text for us right now, and that is, how will you be found clean before God? That's a question. And I hope to revisit that question and give a variety of answers, or at least perspectives to the one answer. What application do we gain? First of all, I want you to understand that we learn that to serve in the presence of a holy God and do holy work requires that we first be cleansed. Second, for those of us living in the New Testament, I want us to know for sure that there is better cleansing. So, as I mentioned earlier... Peter says, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. You are a country of priests. Now, you also may remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. Christ consecrates his priests by his word. Then, Philippians 3.9. When we are found in Christ, we do not have a righteousness that is our own that comes from the law, but ours is now a cleansing that comes through faith in Christ. It is a righteousness from God. So we read these nine verses and we hear God requires cleansing or consecrating. And then we read and contemplate the rest of Scripture. And we know that Christ is the better cleansing than the blood of bulls and rams that are listed here. So we have here Christ is the better consecrator. I'd ask you to think about Jesus' baptism. Why, why was Jesus baptized? If baptism had been some sort of indicator of cleansing, then why was Jesus baptized? Did you ever wonder that? He had no sin. Even as the priests were consecrated in their work and their ceremonial washing, Jesus says to John, you baptize me as I am entering into my ceremonial work. So Jesus becomes the final good high priest and does the water cleansing so that he might make us priests before our God, a kingdom of priests washed with the water of the word. Now, as I leave this point, here's what I want to say. 
when it comes to cleansing, this is a little bit, did you, did you listen, did you follow real closely last week, Pastor Josh made some practical applications about our appearances and maybe the way we think about our clothing from the way that all that emphasis was given to the priestly garments. Well, I, I want to say similarly that there is a right, a wrong, and a sort of right understanding about being consecrated. I want you to know right here, as we talk about Christ being our covering, being our cleansing, that is right. Christ is our righteousness. That is the right response. There's a wrong, and then there's a sort of right. I'm going to get to those in a moment. Let's move to our second point. The consecrated priests need themselves to have a priest. Look at verses 10 through 14. We have here the reason given for the three animals. The priests come to the tabernacle. They bring three animals, a bull and two rams. And they lay their hands on the head of the bull. This is to signify identification with the sacrifice. The death of that animal will stand for the death of the priest. The priest, because of their sin, deserves to die. The priest is a sinner and deserves to die. Romans, twice, the wage for our sin is death. We have all fallen short. We have all sinned. And the punishment for that sin is death. So here stands the bull. The priests lay their hands on the head of the bull to signify the death the bull is going to experience is the death that we deserve. This communicates a representation, a substitution for the penalty. Now, would you please just notice briefly where the bull is sacrificed? At the entrance. Not inside. You don't get to get in and then bloodshed. The only way in is bloodshed. So notice the bull is sacrificed at the doorway and the blood is smeared on the horns of the altar. So if, if you can see the altar, it's a box and on each of the corners there is what resembles a sort of horn. And the blood is meant to be smeared on the horns of the altar. This is done to set the altar apart. You see, the altar had been made with human hands. It itself needed to be consecrated, which only matters because it speaks to how significantly holy our God is. So even this altar needing to be consecrated, look at verse 14. Only the skin, the, the carcass, the waste parts of the bull are taken outside of the camp. These less desirable portions are taken outside of the camp, which becomes synonymous. If you're not familiar yet with what it means to be outside the camp of the people, be put outside is a graphic picture of what it means to have violated the covenant and be expelled from that fellowship with God. It's a striking thing when you think about the way our high priest, Jesus Christ, 
endured this very experience on behalf of us in our place. He himself was put outside of the camp. Listen to Hebrews 13. Do you hear what I mean? Hebrews 13 says this, We have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle don't have the right to eat. Okay. That's significant. Here we are in Exodus 29, and we're studying about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the altar and the bull that is sacrificed. And Hebrews says, Well, we have something they don't have the right to participate with. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle can't eat. And then he goes on in verse 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest is an offering of sin burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So we go out to him outside the camp. This is a picture of Jesus at the place known as the the place of the skull. Outside the city walls of Jerusalem, his destruction, dying for his people in their place as a castaway. The priests here needed themselves a priest. As they laid their hands on that bull, did everything they were instructed to do, all that sacrifice would not have accomplished the sort of consecration it takes to get to the temple that's in heaven. They needed a better priest. They needed a better sacrifice. We who hope to enter the eternal temple of God must also see the representation the substitute of our sin and understand that Christ alone is our sacrifice. So, when Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Do you think that a Hebrew audience might have considered the bull was sacrificed at the doorway? And only those who had come by the blood of the sacrifice could enter into the tabernacle or the temple. And Jesus says, I'm the way into the presence of God. This, again, is the right understanding of being made pure or consecrated. Christ is our only purification. So here's what I want to say before I move away at this point. Sadly, there may be any number of opinions about how you can be made clean to enter into the presence of God. I think we see in our religious cultures, there are a number. Um, maybe someone says, I've, I've been a participant in religion all my life. I've, I've done certain ritual things like communion or baptism. Uh, some of you may have grown up in a way where you were told you had to, you had to complete a course in uh, a, a catechism. Or what, what's the other name? You go to catechism class or confirmation. Thank you. Good job. Or a confirmation. And you've heard, 
You have to do those things, and that's your cleansing to gain access to the temple of God. And it's undeniable that Christ is the door. And without the shedding of His blood, there is no cleansing of sin. So there is a right way, which is Jesus, and there is this wrong way, which is all of these ideas about personal improvement. Let me ask this question pastorally. What will you do with a guilty conscience? What will you do with a guilty conscience? Uh, maybe, maybe you can relate to the rest of us where you sit today and you have failed. I read earlier from Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? The thing I know I'm supposed to do, I don't. The thing I know I'm not supposed to do, I do. Maybe you can relate to that. I, I can. And what will you do with that sense of guilt? Maybe your only response is you'll do better next time. Maybe you have some sort of debtor's ethic where you say, okay, because I did that wrong, no one else knows about it, but I'm going to do this good thing, and that's going to balance out the wrong thing I did. And so I just want to keep the scale in favor of obedience. What will you do with guilt? In all of the things the priests did according to instruction, they needed blood sacrifice. They needed a better blood sacrifice. The priests needed a priest. You are no exception to that. When Jesus teaches on this sort of moral conduct in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to the hearers, except your righteousness exceeds that of the rule keepers, the scribes and Pharisees, except your righteousness is better than theirs. You do not get into the temple of God. So I, I wonder, what will you do with the sense of guilt? Like you've broken one of God's rules. Maybe you have total confidence that you, in fact, are an adopted child of God. But what will you do when you know, you've, you've, you know that you have been a disobedient child? I wonder if in that moment you look to Christ not as an abuser of grace but as a dependent of grace. Let me go to the third. So, so first we have they need ritual cleansing. Second we have even the priests need a priest. And then third, the consecrated priest depended on the merciful justice of God. Mercy and justice. Verse 15 through 18. So we've already seen, in verses 10 through 14, we've seen a sacrifice system. Now look, we see the sacrifice of the first ram in verse 15 through 18. The ram sacrificed as a burnt offering. Sacrifice reminds us that even the priests who serve as the representatives of Israel needed mercy for themselves in their sacrifice. 
after the animal is slaughtered, the blood is thrown over the altar. So you've already got the blood of the bulls on the horns, some of it kept. Now you've got the ram and its blood being splashed on the side of the altar. Blood spread all over the altar. I, I wonder. I wonder. If, I wonder how. You, uh, wonder how your mind's eye works. I know mine doesn't work great. I, I have to really be confronted to see things more clearly. Like, like here. What, what I mean by that is, can you see the nativity of our Lord? And is it really conditioned by a lot of? Hallmark nativity scene stuff. And, the, the, and my mind's eye doesn't work well because it's been preconditioned by some things. But I wonder what you see here. How, how many of you have ever been, uh, you can answer honestly, we won't think less of you. How many of you have ever been near a slaughtering of an animal? Been near a processing of slaughtering? Yep. I think I've told this story before. I'm going to say it really quickly. Uh, I was asked once years ago, if I would perform a wedding for a young couple, I said, sure, I will. And, and the groom said to me very kindly, he said, do you mind if we pay you with pork? He, he was a, a pig farmer, and he asked if it was okay if he paid me with some pork. And I said, oh, that's, that's great. That would be fantastic. Thank you very much. And, and then he followed up by saying, okay, I'm paying everybody, the caterer, the photographer, everyone's being paid that way because that's what I have to be able to trade. Well, okay, that works. And we're all going to get together and we're going to slaughter the pigs next Thursday. Why are you telling me this? So I was pastoring a, a very rural country church. And I thought pastorally, this would be great, you know, elbow to elbow time. I'm going to go and I'm going to learn this process. And maybe I'll appreciate it more. So I showed up early in the morning. At the time I was told to show up. And there was me and one other elderly gentleman who was the resident professional in this business. And it was just the two of us. And I thought it was going to be like 10 or 15 of us. It was just the two of us. And there was a stock trailer with, I think there were eight pigs in the stock trailer. And I, my first response was, okay, well, we tried. Let's see when the rescheduled date is. And, but that was not his response. His response was, all right, do you want to... Well, I won't get too graphic. What, what job do you want to do? I'll take none of those, thank you. <laughs> and so I picked my task and did my job for, I think, five hogs before anyone else showed up. The point of telling you that story is that that conditions a little bit of what I understand happening here. You have your second animal killed in this fairly small space in a very dry desert. And it would have looked horrific. And I think that as we condition our mind's eye, I think that's helpful. You have blood going all over the place. And we're not even to the third animal yet. We're going to find out where that blood goes. This is meant to be a bloody scene. Because, quite frankly, if I may say it simply, a crime had been committed. And this bloodshed is meant to point us to the need for substitutionary sacrifice. In the Old Testament, this is the mode in which God's mercy 
is going to be poured out on his people, this justice. Something must die. As priests that we are in the new covenant, Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In fact, would you turn your Bibles there? I want to I want to share with you three verses I've been thinking a lot about in way of how do we respond to this instruction? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, so make for yourself, make of yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then this instruction follows, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So do not be conformed, but be transformed. Okay. Now remember before when I told you that there's going to be the right response to our need for cleansing, for purification, to be set apart for a specific function, that entering the temple? I told you there was a right way. That right way is Christ is the door. Without his substitute sacrifice for me and his atoning bloodshed for me, there is no forgiveness of sins and no access into the temple. Okay, that's right. Remember I told you wrong. Wrong is to think, oh, I've got this guilty conscience. I've done something bad. What do I have to do now? Right to make everything balance out. That's wrong. That's wrong. That, if, if you wonder why that's wrong, go to the book of Galatians. And Galatians is going to explain to you why exactly that's wrong. You're not first atoned by gracious sacrifice and then kept atoned by good works. Go read Galatians. Here, I want to get to... Remember the third one? Does anyone remember what it was? There's a right way, there's a wrong way, and then there's a sort of... Okay, I want to use Romans 12, 1 and 2 to explain that. Because would you look at, if, if you still have your spot in Exodus 29, would you look at verse 18? You have this sacrifice being burned. And the Bible says it is a sweet aroma to the Lord. So Paul picks up on that sacrifice and says you should present your body's living sacrifice as a sweet aroma to the Lord. I want to talk about how do you do living sacrifice in a way that's not some sort of, I'm going to use the word debtor's ethic. Uh, like, I'm guilty, I better do better. Okay. Um, let me give an illustration. Have you ever had the, the, the challenging experience of going somewhere and participating in something that you felt like was really discouraging to your um, joy in Christ. So it could be any number of things. I've thought a lot about different examples. And unfortunately, I have a handful of things and experiences and places you might go. And you leave and you think, ooh, that was discouraging. 
I, I feel dirty. You ever have? It could be anything. It could be, could be a family reunion. It, it could be, maybe, maybe you had the unfortunate responsibility to have to go to a very controversial gathering at a town hall meeting. Ooh. Ever been to one of those? Everyone feels dirty when you leave that. Uh, maybe for you it was a school board meeting where there was something really... I remember being in Wausau and there was a really tough school board meeting. Boy, they had to hold it in this giant room because they were trying to figure out how to manage bathrooms. Um, I remember going to that school board meeting. Maybe it's a ball game. You ever go to a ball game and, and you leave and you're like, what, what is wrong with people? Or wear the wrong jersey to a ball game. Okay, so you leave these places... And you do sense, like, oh, I think, I've, I think I've been around something really unbecoming. And I feel affected by it. Any variety of measures in that. I, I had that experience not long ago. And I remember driving and thinking, oh, that was not edifying. That was, quite frankly, kind of disgusting and unfortunate. And I'm driving down the road, and eventually I noticed that I had my radio on. And really helpful, gospel-magnifying lyrics. There is a way that it's right, through the blood of Christ, there is a way that your consecration is wrong. I'll do better next time. Hopefully no one finds out. That, that sort of, that's wrong. And there is this way that is helpful in reminding us that we get back to the blood of Christ. So there is this way where when we have been stained by the fact that we live in this fall, stained in influence, that we are ministered to by the reminders, the proclamations of the gospel. So, when it comes to our consecration, there are all sorts of means that God ministers to his people to remind them of their necessity for Christ. Things like coming to church. Things like sitting down and reading scripture with your family. Things like singing. Things like having Christian gospel emphasizing songs on the radio. So there's the right way, which is Christ. There's the wrong way, which is, I'll do better next time. I think I can be a good person. That's wrong. You don't get into the temple by being a good person. And then there's the sort of right way, which it's only right if ultimately it points you back to the right way. Let me move now quickly. This is where the caffeine was called for earlier. This hope of self-righteousness to get in is wrong. Hebrews 10.4 It is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Titus 3.5 He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which He poured on us, out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Self-righteousness does not gain these priests, nor these priests, access to the temple. Number four. The consecrated priest is branded in blood. Look at verses 19 through 25. So I told you before, there's a lot of blood going around. Verses 19 through 25 expands on that. Look at verses 19 and 20. You have this strange ritual. You've got the blood 
of the next ram being put on the right ear, the right thumb, and the big toe on the right foot. Now, I read that and I thought, I wonder why. Because I tend to ask that a lot when I read the Bible. I wonder why. I don't know why. But I do know that for me, it looks like this. That the priest must be covered from head to toe in blood. And so rather than literally dip the priest in a vat of blood from ear to thumb to foot, symbolizing a blood covering. Look, look at verse 21. The ram's blood and the anointing oil is applied to the priest. This is another symbol of cleansing and purification. Verse 22, there is another expression of cleansing called the wave offering. This whole ceremony graphically illustrates the principle of the necessity of blood concerning purification and atonement. As I mentioned twice already, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. These priests had to be branded in blood. Before I move away from that, I, I would ask you, do you perceive yourself to be branded in blood? The blood of Christ. Fifth, the consecrated priests are blessed with enjoying a covenant meal. Look at verse 31 through 34. A covenant meal of the priest. After the ceremony, there is this meal shared together. I don't know how many of you have ever been in uh, like Eastern or Near Eastern culture. I remember once we, we had a, a family who had moved to Wausau from the east and near east and uh, I had had an opportunity to interact with them and like a typical westerner I had my schedule very set I was going to go to this thing and then I would give myself about 90 seconds to get to this thing and then you know 38 seconds to get to this thing and I was already running on borrowed time from the thing I was with with this family and I got done and like a westerner check I had completed that task for the morning and then the father, the husband, turned to me and said, Will you come up and have lunch with us, a meal with us? Like a Westerner, I said, I can't, I need to run. And to a Westerner, that's kind of the response you hope for. Good. But not to a Near Easterner, right? In the Near East, there is a special relationship sealed when a meal is shared together. Now that matters to us, not because Westerners need to be more Near Eastern, but it matters to us because our God symbolizes a special relationship with us in a meal too. In verse 31 and 32, we see the lamb of ordination, this, this ram, and the three types of bread that were put into the basket. Finally, they come into play. They provide the content for a meal that's going to be shared this food is said to be just for the consecrated priests. That's true of New Covenant communion as well. Let me get to the sixth point, my last one. The reason for the consecration is because God says, I will be your God. The reason 
that cleansing, the reason that purification is required is because God said he will be our God. And he is holy. Look at verse 45. I just want to draw your attention to verse 45 and 46. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Everything that we have read here, the length of it, as we read this section, this paragraph, is a seven-day ceremony served to emphasize how important this act was to God. There are two things that I want to point out from this section. First, this is a daily sacrifice. It was never to be interrupted. It was to be continually offered. The daily sacrifice was seen at the very heart of Israel's relationship to God. Now, think about that. Would, would you just put yourself in their shoes? So let me, let me invite you to go back to the wilderness with the Hebrew people on their exodus and invite you into their function and then share the good news with you, okay? God says, here's what I want you to do. Here's, here's how I want my people to function. Here's the sort of moral instruction that I have for you. Here's the civil instructions that I have for you. And then he introduces himself and says, I am a holy God who has called for these things. And then he says, here's the ceremony. Bloodshed. Now, the very fact that he says, this is how I want you to perform the shedding of blood, tells us that there was never meant to be some sort of dependence on rule-keeping, was there? There has never been an expectation in God's redemptive plan that the people could just keep the rules and be saved. Right away, upon giving them instruction, you remember back at Sinai when there was the, the blood was sprinkled over the people? They were meant to see the law of Moses through the lens of substitute sacrifice for their inadequacy to keep the instruction. So that's your economy. You're living there in the wilderness. Every day you're told, do this. And every day, somehow you don't. So every day, the priest goes and kills another animal. And then every day, you're told, do this. And every day, you don't. And every day, the priest kills the animals. And every day, you're told, you see where this is going? This is your pattern. Instruction, sin, sacrifice. Instruction, sin, sacrifice. Instruction, sin, sacrifice. Here's the good news. You've received the instruction. You are told by God to do His commands. You are told. Can you? No. There must be then a sacrifice. But not every day. Hebrews 7.27 Christ has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. He offers sacrifice once for all when he offered up himself. Christ 
once and for all is our substitutionary sacrifice. And once he was done with his priestly work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed it. Now, I want to show you one other thing, too, in verse 46. Why does God bring these captives out of bondage into the Exodus? Why did God bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Look at verse 46. That I may dwell among them. That's the heart of the covenant. That's the heart of the promise. I will be with you. That's what we get. In all of the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus, that's what we get. I will be with you. Why did he bring me out of bondage? Why is he leading me through the wilderness? Why is he giving me instruction like a lamp to my feet? Because he says, I will be with you. So to close, or at least my conclusion, don't get your hopes up. I've got a couple lines here. But it is my conclusion. This section on the tabernacle helps us see the continuity of God's plan. We're learning things about God, about his redemption, by studying these chapters about the tabernacle. It's not some sort of disappointing trial and error. Like God says, let's try this. Oh, oh. This is the one consistent plan of redemption unfolding for us through all the revelation of Scripture. I hope that as you hear this consistent unfolding plan, I hope that it clarifies for you a confidence that all of God's promises are true and will not fail. What we've seen this morning sounds like this. A cleansing in the redemption plan has always been a cleansing by a bloodshed of a substitute. The need for even the most religious of people to be atoned for. That any purification must depend on mercy and justice. I hope you see that dynamic, mercy and justice. It is unspeakably merciful that God has seen fit to pour out His justice on someone other than you and I. Mercy and justice. That those who are purified would forever be branded in blood. That the process of purification secures for us a fellowship meal with Yahweh. And then that leads us to the final God himself is the reason for our purification. God with us. So, I think, I think there are some really important things that I want you to hear about Christian life. I, I don't want you to not know what to do with guilt. I have a feeling, just personally, that guilt is maybe a reoccurring presence in your life. And I don't want you to not know what to do with it. I, I know one of the things that guilt can do is push you into a sense of hopelessness. What's the point? I don't even think I can do this Christian life. 
I'm not getting it right very often. And it can push you into a sense of isolation and hopelessness. And before long, you find yourself disgusted by getting together with other Christians because you assume they've got it all together. And you just feel inadequate in comparison. And so you retreat into your own sense of hopelessness. I don't want that to happen. I want this sermon to remind you that your acts of righteousness were never meant to be the means of your access into the temple of God or fellowship with God. God has promised to be with us. And the means of that fellowship is the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Alone. So listen to what Jesus said when he prayed his high priestly prayer. Do you remember that story? Do you remember that account of Christ? He's just left the upper room. And he's walking across town. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested. He has shared the Last Supper with his disciples. And he's walking across town and oh, just his disciples are struggling with some sort of self-seeking promotion still. And he starts praying. And it's what we know as the high priestly prayer in John 17. One of the things he says in the high priestly prayer is this. Verse 19. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. He, he prays for those who are already his disciples. They're walking with him. They're struggling. He prays for them. He prays for those who are not yet. He, that's us. He's walking through the city praying for us. And as he's praying, he says, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified. Well, well how? You consecrate yourself. What do we got to do to be sanctified, right? We might be tempted back to our Western mentality. What do we got to do to be sanctified? There's no description of what we have to do to be sanctified. There's only, from earlier today, Romans 7 and 8, that which I should do, I don't do. That which I should not do, I do. But there is no condemnation to those that are in, in Christ. In Christ. Not like Christ. Not obedient to Christ. In Christ. For their sake I consecrate myself. I am the blood sacrifice that makes them acceptable before God. The temple. Ephesians 2, 22. In Christ we then are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit of God. So right now there is temple reality. It's us. We are the temple being prepared by the Holy Spirit for God. We are the place where we meet with God. He dwells in us, in His Spirit. And then, where is all this going? The temple in heaven, temple in the garden, temple in the wilderness, temple in Jerusalem. Where is all this going? Well, it's announced in Revelation 21. John heard a loud voice from the throne saying... Behold, the dwelling place of God is 
with man. That's where this is going. Why all this consecration talk? Because God promised to be with us. What is the ultimate announcement when the day of the Lord arrives? The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. All this bloodshed and all this reoccurring disobedience and sacrifice. I pray that clearly you understand at this moment... The consecration is because God will be with us. And the only hope for us being set apart to a particular function through cleansing is the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that what we've been reminded of would both equip your people to know what to do with their own failings. I pray that it would shape the way that we go from here now to share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. That, that we don't commend to them some sort of partnership between self-improvement and the atonement of Jesus Christ. We call people to, to see themselves putting their hands on the sacrifice of Christ and saying this is my only hope this representative of my penalty that Christ's death in our place is our only consecration. I, I pray that it would cause your people to both delight in the law of the Lord and be confident that you alone are working out both the will and the pleasure to do your instruction. Father, would you be glorified in the way that you continue to be long-suffering toward us and the way that your mercy endures and your grace continues without end to those of us who are reminded that we are without claim for grace or mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing together.